This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 374th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by the HBO original series, The Undoing, for your awards consideration. Nominated for four Golden Globe Awards, including Best TV Limited Series, and starring powerhouse actors Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, both nominated for their leading roles at the Golden Globes and SAG Awards, and Donald Sutherland, Golden Globe nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series, The Undoing, now streaming on HBO Max. And now down to business. My guest today is one of the most gifted and admired actresses in Hollywood, and she has been for more than a half century. One of the few people ever to have been a bona fide star as both a child and as an adult, she started acting at the age of three. And as The Guardian once put it, she became, quote, a unique figure in show business because of her intelligence, integrity, and talent, close quote, ultimately receiving the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's Cecil B. DeMille Award for Career Achievement in 2013. She was first Oscar nominated at the age of 14 for her performance as a child prostitute in 1976's Taxi Driver, and she won two Best Actress Oscars before the age of 30, for playing a victim of a gang rape in 1988's The Accused and an FBI agent in 1991's The Silence of the Lambs, placing her in an elite club of leading ladies who have won more than one, the other 13 members being Katherine Hepburn, Meryl Streep, Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, Jane Fonda, Olivia de Havilland, Frances McDormand, Elizabeth Taylor, Glenda Jackson, Sally Field, Vivian Lee, Louise Reiner, and Hilary Swank. Over the years since, she has divided her time between acting and directing, helming four feature films, 1991's Little Man Tate, 1995's Home for the Holidays, 2011's The Beaver, and 2016's Money Monster, as well as episodes of TV shows like Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, and Black Mirror, while also acting, albeit less frequently than she once did, in films such as 1994's Nell, 1997's Contact, 2002's Panic Room, 2005's Flight Plan, 2007's The Brave One, and, most recently, Kevin McDonald's 2020 film The Mauritanian, in which she plays a defense attorney for a man imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, and for which she is currently nominated for a Golden Globe, the great Jodie Foster. 
Over the course of our conversation, the 58-year-old and I discussed how her acting career began and what kept her returning to it, even after personal traumas ranging from being attacked by a lion while on the set of her first film to being stalked while in college by a man who then shot Ronald Reagan in March 1981 to try to quote-unquote impress her. Why she has often chosen to play characters who could just as easily have been, and in some cases were written to be, male. What happened when she turned 50 that changed the sorts of projects to which she wanted to devote her time, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jody, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Really honored to have you. And uh, on this one, we truly begin at the beginning. And I wonder if you can just share for our listeners where you were born and raised and, uh, and what your folks did for a living. Ah, well, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, California. There are not many people that can say that. Um, Yeah, my mom was a single mom who raised the four of us. I was the youngest and I was born after they were officially divorced. So I didn't have anything to do with my dad. So, you know, yeah, he was a real estate guy, but I didn't have anything to do with him. And your mom was working at, at one point, I know, for a guy who I find pretty interesting, Arthur Jacobs. Uh, was that your memory of her? Was she already out of that when you came along? I think she was. There might have been, you know, it's all a bit of a blur. She did work for Arthur Jacobs, I think, before she she married my dad. Okay. And then, um, so I don't think, yeah, I don't think she was working for him after that. Although we, occasionally we would see him and we knew him. She pretty much just raised us. My brother started working uh, when he was... He was probably like eight, I think. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I started working when I was three. So she was on set with us. Yeah. So I guess I, I had read that your brother preceded you into this. And I just wonder, I was going to say, how did it start for you? But I guess in a way, the question is really, how did it start for him? So uh, what was that? Just being local, there was an opportunity or something? Yeah. When you're raised in LA, um, there's always some kid across the street that's been doing commercials or something. And my brother met some kid that lived across the street and he said, I wanted to do that. And my mom didn't pay any attention to them that, that, that was about a year. And then finally he insisted and she said, okay, well you can go out on a commercial or something. And he became kind of a big child actor. He was in, uh, a couple of big television shows. One was called Hondo and another one was called, um, Mayberry RFD. He was the son of Ken Berry in that show. 
Yeah. He was on that show for a number of years. And um, I guess one day he went out for a commercial for Coppertone and they didn't want to leave me in the car. Obviously, he couldn't leave me alone in the car. And I came in and then I insisted on walking in with him. And they eventually rewrote the 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 commercial. He didn't get it, but I did. And I played the little Coppertone girl. The one who gets her what is her back of her pants pulled down, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think I don't remember that that actually worked. They couldn't really quite train the dog to do that. So <laughs> that, that's true in the advertisement that you right. see on all the billboards. And I came after the advertisement, but I was the first commercial. Yeah. And so that was at three. Um, and then it was pretty regular demand for you right away from then. Uh, gee, I don't know. I know I worked a lot. I did a lot of commercials, a lot of commercials. By the time I was six, I was on a TV series at seven, seven or eight. I think I did my first movie at 12, 11 or 12, I, 11, I probably stopped doing television and I stopped doing commercials and television. And then, uh, by the time I was 12, I just did features. Yeah. So that first film for a lot of us, if we had been in your position, I believe would have been our last film because something pretty <laughs> crazy happened, right? I had read that. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was mauled by a lion on my first movie. Um, How does that happen? You know, it's, stuff happens on film sets. Um, he, he was being pulled by piano wire, which is like an invisible wire to try to get him to go certain places. And um, they had had some issues with the lions at night because they kept them in a zoo and they didn't guard them properly. And kids were shooting BB guns at the animals and they just weren't getting any sleep. So the animal that was supposed to be shooting that day just refused to even move. So they used the stand-in lion who was a bit younger and had all his teeth and all that. Not all his teeth, most of his teeth, because yeah. uh, they, <laughs> they do pull. They do pull quite a few of them. Um, yeah. He, I was just walking in front of him. It was the end of the day, and the next thing I knew, I saw his mane come around my waist. Uh, that's kind of all I remember. I remember I got, I was moved sideways, like I was sideways, looking sideways at everyone and shaking because I thought it was an earthquake. Mm, um, yeah. But it was him shaking me in his mouth, and then I noticed that everybody was leaving. So the whole crew just booked in the opposite direction. They were just running away from me sideways because I was sideways. Uh, then apparently the trainer said, drop it. And he dropped me out of his mouth and I went rolling down a hill. And then he put his, he ran after me and then put his paw on me and just like waited for someone to tell him what to do. Sort of like your cat might do with yeah. a, you know, a toy or something. And were you, were you very hurt or were you Okay. I, yes. Well, I was airlifted. Um, I had, do have scars on my hip, not very big scars, small scars, because if he wanted to kill me, he could have, you know, he really just took me in his mouth and, mm -hmm. uh, he, I did have the incisor marks on my, uh, on my hips and I was, I was, I mean, I'm lucky. I was incredibly lucky. I was okay. Um, and then I went back to work for the animal uh, with the animal like a week later. Well, that's what I feel like was, is almost emblematic of your of your whole <laughs> life and career is that most of us would say Jesus that's enough I'm out of here and you're back with the same lion like what is it like a week later yeah yeah I don't know if that's smart I don't know <laughs> you know my mom had this idea that somehow I would be freaked out forever if I didn't just return you know just kind of get back on the horse and and they had assured me that I was okay at a moment there was a moment where they thought he'd burst my spleen and that was <laughs> you know my mom was careful, but it wasn't. It was all fine. Then I, I went and did other Disney movies. The producer 
on that movie was also the producer on another movie that I made with a bunch of animals at Disney. And he had no idea that I had had an accident. They had put on the production report that I'd fallen. And um, they were so scared to tell anyone that they lied on all the production reports. And I kept getting bills for hospital bills for years later, not realizing that they, they had never, they had never kind of, the hospital had never been connected up with Disney. That is insane. Well, you know, that was one of many uh, mind-blowing things I came across prepping for this, just trying to read everything you've ever, you know, had written about you or written or said. And uh, I want to quote back to you another thing that I, I thought was interesting from Vanity Fair. This is 1988. This is a comment of your mother's. Quote, there was a definite plan for Jody. She wasn't to be a child actor. She didn't do kitty parts after she was eight. She did one series, then we stopped that, and she did only guest spots on TV, close quote, sort of what you were just saying. Uh, so I guess, obviously, when you're three, it's not your conscious decision to get into this. So I wonder, as you reach the age of knowing what was going on, by that point, you're already, from what I understand, essentially supporting the whole family was it at that point something that you would have chosen to continue or did you feel obligated to continue doing it? I don't think I stopped for a minute to feel anything, actually. And um, I mean, I do have to credit my mom. She was an amazing manager. She couldn't have done things better. I mean, she the choices that she made for me was because she wanted me to be taken seriously as a person. And she really respected me as an individual. So I, there's no part of me that will ever look back and go, why'd she do that? I mean, right, it right. was such a and it was such a great experience for me um, growing up all the things I got to do in the places that I got to see and to have a, a craft that had depth to it. At the same time, I don't think I ever would have been an actor if that hadn't happened to me. I, there's just no way. I don't have the personality. I don't have um, that drive to want to like dance on tables and, you know, show everybody my impersonation of you know, Johnny Carson or whatever. You know, it's just not my way. And that has been a struggle for me. And yet it's, it's, it's a quality that's made my work different, I think, than a lot of people yeah. because I approach it differently. I've always approached the work in some ways as a director who loves films and appreciates movies and is always kind of, kind of deconstruct how they're made and how, you know, strategize how, a, how a story can come to the screen. So, I mean, I just feel very blessed that I was given this opportunity, but, um, my mom always said to me, she said, so when, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, she always was saying, are you going to be a lawyer? Are you going to be a writer, a doctor? You know, she was always, uh, trying to tell me that this was not forever. This was just a temporary thing that I did as a child and eventually it would all go away, which is good and bad. I mean, it's kind of good and bad because then once I did start working in my 20s and went back to it, um, she would say things like, you know, when you're 40, you're never going to work again. Oh. <laughs> um, and so I anticipated that when I would turn 40, like it would all be over. That would be it. I'd go on, I'd do other things. And then that wasn't true either. So yeah, it's just been a weird path, I guess. I, I gathered also that one of the joys of the of being a child on a film on film sets, TV sets was that, you know, you were saying you didn't have a dad at home. Here were a lot of adults, many of them, most of them in those days, male, yeah. right, who were in some ways your buddies and also your teachers, right? Yeah, I had, um, you know, I had these film sets and I was raised by this family, um, mostly of, of kind of dad figures and brother figures who taught me how to do things like, you know, load the camera, you know, load the film, the magazine into the, into the camera or, or they, the Teamsters would teach me how to whittle wood. I know how to whittle wood, um, <laughs> and valuable lessons too. Like, you know, you, 
you write thank you notes or you, um, you know, you, you, you give a hug to every single person at rap and you thank them for their work. You know, that all those things, those little life lessons that I learned in a community of people who cared about me, um, and who cared about my well-being. I really did. I felt like they cared about my well-being and my mom was there. So she was there to protect me as well. Um, yeah, I feel very grateful for that. Um, and yet at the same time, yeah, it was all, it was all men because there really weren't any women, um, technicians making movies in those days. So even without having kind of a, a, a person to look to as a, as a model for this, it seems like as early as 13, I think, you were thinking about directing. What was the hands of time? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I think I, maybe at the age of six was the first time I thought wow. about directing. I did a television show, and the, and the actor who had been acting with us, Bill Bixby, on Courtship Betty's Father, he, he directed an episode, and I was kind of blown away, and I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, yeah, and I guess I had told that I was doing an interview for the BBC, and I had told them that it was this big, you know, series, long series that they did on the Americans, and I was chosen as the American um, for the t- film business. And um, they gave me the opportunity to shoot a short with their crew, and they said, "Okay, you can do whatever you want. What do you want to do?" And I, you know, I wrote a, a, a very earnest little. <laughs> A very earnest little short and I, that I was able to film, that I was able to do a day's worth of filming and a, and a half a day worth of little pickups and things. Um, so that was the start of things. Nice. I guess the first film of, of real note, because there were obviously a number of films that preceded this, but it seems like to be working at, I don't know, 12, 13 with Scorsese on before Taxi Driver, a year before Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, just because it would obviously lead to this longer collaboration. I'm curious, how did you guys, was that just a regular kind of cattle call that led you to his attention or did he know, like what brought you to his attention? I have no idea. I mean, I had, I had an agent, so I came in, I came in for an actual interview. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, a cattle call, as you say, which is when thousands of people uh, arrive. That's usually for commercials or something. And we had seen, I think at that point we probably had seen Mean Streets and um, I was completely into it and totally into Robert De Niro. And my mom took me to see every movie made. So even at such foreign- a young age, yeah, we saw a lot of foreign films. We saw a lot of movies that were R rated that I probably shouldn't have seen. And then she would <laughs> sort of say, go get some popcorn or, you know, during the, the complicated parts. Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's how it happened. We, I already was a fan of his work. So you, you have that experience and then I, it's truly, I guess, less than a year later that, Somehow the idea is broached that maybe you at, I think, 13 or 14 should play this 12 and a half year old child prostitute. Now, I know you're saying you've been going to European movies and all of that, but when that idea was first uh, presented to your mother, I believe by Scorsese himself, what was her reaction and what was what was your reaction when you heard that this was what you were wanted for? Yeah, I was 12 when I made Taxi Driver, um, and I was playing a 12-year-old, so it was the same age as the, oh, okay. the character. Um, and that was a reality. Look, that was a reality. That that happened. Those people were there. Um, that was a part of America. And I think when I went to talk to him about, he, he had talked to my mom about the role, and she said, do you think she can play that? Um, we came to his office and I was in my uniform, my school uniform with my knee socks and my little Peter Pan collar and stuff. And, um, she's like, if you think she can play that, um, you know, great because we revered him as a director and yeah. And I had already seen lots of 
I mean, he was a real filmmaker, so I had seen a lot of films with a lot of adult performances, and I knew what I was getting into. So, I mean, what was kind of interesting about the way that I was raised was that I was raised in a way that was very protected by my mom. And, um, we were always together and I went to, you know, a little private school with a uniform and all of that. And yet there wasn't anything that she kept from me. There was no information that she kept from me. I lived in Hollywood. So I lived, you know, a mile, half a mile from Hollywood Boulevard. It wasn't like I didn't know what prostitutes were. Um, so we'd had all, we had all the conversations. And you, I think it should be noted where it seems like pretty well, protected on the set. I mean, I'd read there was basically a welfare worker the whole time. And then oh, yeah. for the, for the really more risque stuff, you had a stand in. Yeah. My sister volunteered yes. to be my stand in because she was over 18. Um, she's actually smaller than me. She's actually a little <laughs> bit smaller than me. And she actually doesn't really, her body doesn't look anything like me from the back, but she's quite small. So my mom said, what a great idea. Connie can come and she can be your body double for those scenes. Um, there was a court case that was brought, uh, I can't rem- I don't remember who brought it, but they basically were trying to get my permit uh, from the welfare department um, pulled for, I guess, because they thought that the film might hurt me emotionally, that I wasn't, you know, were trying to protect me emotionally. So there was a court case and they all decided I was sane enough to play the part and um, I had to see a psychiatrist and all of that. And I, I had to be out of the room when, you know, certain words were said. I think um, the probably the most lasting takeaway from from what I've been able to tell of this was that, I mean, you're working here, you're primarily working with Keitel and De Niro, and you've said that, which itself is, you know, just an amazing thing, but you've said that De Niro, who's, I know from my own limited interactions, you know, he's not the most (laughs) outgoing, uh, you know, talkative guy, but he really took you under his wing, right? I mean, it seems like in terms of learning how to improvise and do some of the things that he does so well, was that the case? Yeah. And I don't even think he realized that's what he was doing. I mean, I think he was trying to get comfortable um, and he is not a comfortable, he was not, at least at that time and under the spell of the character of Travis Bickle, he was definitely a very uncomfortable person. Um, Didn't speak very much. He was, you know, kind of with those like darting eyes and Um, so he would pick me up, uh, from the hotel and then he would take me to like a diner or something like that. And then we would rehearse the lines and then I would wait for him to say something else. And he'd be like, no small talk, like nothing. He wasn't able to talk at all. So I would just sit there with him and we did this like two or three times. And on the third time he started improvising and I, I guess that was his way. That's how he improvises is he knows the text incredibly well. And then, you know, starts moving into other, other thoughts that the character might have. And I followed him and I felt like I learned so much. I mean, it was a really a life-changing role for me, a life-changing experience. And it was the first time as a child that I realized that acting was more than just, you know, saying lines that somebody else wrote. Interesting. Well, uh, I wondered what your take is just because that movie almost, what was it like basically 50, almost around 50 years ago, um, is that right? Almost, no, sorry, almost. 40. Like 48 or something, 40, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, you know, that movie has inspired many others. Probably right, I would connect, and I, I think uh, the filmmakers acknowledge as much, right through like Joker, probably about a year ago, that one. And every time a movie like this comes along, people have the same conversation about, do violent movies make people violent in the real world? And I just wondered, as you've talked about this movie over the course of your life, 
What do you, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I make serious dramatic movies, um, that are meant to challenge people. Um, and I, I, of course, I believe that taxi driver is, you know, one of our greatest American classics. Um, it is very importantly, significantly really about somebody, um, at the end of the Vietnam war, trying to figure out who he is to this country and, you know, somebody who has changed by that experience. And, you know, that, that was, that was America. That was America at that time. And I, I felt like it's such an important movie. So there's no part of me that feels like, you know, that movie is, is irresponsible. Um, you know, for, for me, it's a, it's a really, uh, an important work of art. You know, I always say like, you can take a two by four and you can build a building with it, or you can smack somebody over the head with it, you know? Right. And the, the two by four is itself is a piece of material and it's just a question of what people do with it. Um, and I think that so much good discussion has happened because of Taxi Driver and so much important evolution has happened in film and in politics because of that film Yeah, that I think that that speaks for itself. Yeah. One of the, obviously one of the great, great movies. Um, and I think that it's pretty incredible that in one, that for, with that movie and two others, at the so three movies at the same time, you go to the Cannes Film Festival that year. I believe the others that would have been Bugsy Malone and the little girl who lives down the lane. So these are all happening right around the same time. Coming out of Taxi Driver, obviously there's a there's a, an Oscar nomination for you. A lot more people taking you as a you know a serious promising young actress. That movie, I, Taxi Driver, came out I think early '76, early '77. Not even a year later is also Freaky Friday, where there's such a you, you know we see the range of things you can do. I guess I just wonder what you remember of what must have felt like a pretty whirlwind of a of a period for you there. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, amazing moment, and um, I look. I, I don't often look back. I mean, we don't often sort of look back and, and think about where we've come from. You know, we just keep moving forward. But what an opportunity to be a part of um, the most important moment in filmmaking history, which was the 70s, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be with such enormous talent and to have the opportunity to say something. Yeah. And also all of the fun that came with that, you know, traveling and, you know, getting that kind of respect. So, yeah, it was great. It was a great moment. It, I, I actually had four movies at Cannes that year. Really? Um, yeah. There was another movie uh, called The Last Castle that was in the sales part of Cannes. Wow. Unbelievable. So and meanwhile, though, you were never completely out of regular schooling, right? I think it, <laughs> or, or you were being yeah. you were being educated on set or how did that work? Well, I was educated. I was schooled on set when I was working, but yeah. then when I wasn't working, I was at a school. Um, yeah. I went to the French Lycée in Los Angeles, so all of my schoolwork was in French. Um, and then they would send me with schoolwork. They would send me with, you know, whatever it is that I had to do onto sets um, where I had a teacher with me who um, could speak French as well. So you had said once that basically in your mind, when you were working all, all this time as a child, it was always with the goal of this is going to allow you to go to college, right? I mean, first person in your family to, I believe, go to college. That was, that was important to you because you wanted to at least work towards that moment when you would have a kind of a normal life or what was the, what was the appeal of, uh, I mean, clearly you were a great student before that to be able to get into Yale in my, in my hometown. But I guess I just wonder (laughs) what, what was, what was the draw for you of going to college? 
You know, for me, books were everything. Um, I just love books. I love writing. I love reading. And I like school. So that was my thing. And um, there was no part of my psyche or in my brain that ever thought that I wouldn't continue go and go to college. I mean, it's not like I had these dreams when I was seven years old that I was going to go to college, but that, that was the path that I was on. So I guess it was kind of like a, it was an unusual thing that an actor would go to college. Um, most actors didn't because it's your prime years when you're young. Most actors just want to like, you know, keep moving, but it was important to me. It was important to my mom. And she said, look, you know, you'll probably never work again, <laughs> as she would <laughs> often say to me. Uh, so we're going to prepare, you know, we're going to prepare, we're going to tighten our belts, we're going to move to a smaller house and you're going to go to college and, you know, maybe you'll make a few films here or there, but this is pretty much the end of your career. Most child actors, you know, by the time they hit 18, that's the end of their career. Was that upsetting to you? No, I didn't think I was ever going to be an actor when I grew up. I mean, I'm right. still shocked. I'm still shocked that I'm an actor when I grew up. I, I can't quite believe that I'm still doing the job that I did from the time that I was three years old. Um, I never anticipated that this is what I would be doing. I always yeah. thought I would be doing something else. And so um, I did do, you know, I'd still made like, I think I made five or six movies while I was in college. Mm -hmm. um, I took a couple of semesters off in order to do that. And, but I, I did make five or six movies while I was in college. You also did something that I don't think you had really done before or have done since, which is theater. Was that just uh, to see if you liked it or what, what led you to and, and why haven't you done it more? Yeah, I guess it was to see if I liked it. I mean, all my friends were in theater when I was in college and it was something that people did. Right. And it didn't mean that you were going to be an actor when you grew up. But a lot of people did theater there. And um, Yale's pretty famous for that, that they have this non-academic um, theater uh, world, which I'm sure you know, because you're from New Haven. Yep. So it was a weird experience. Um, uh, my, the play I was in, uh, it was a Marsha Norman play called Getting Out. And, um, I was on stage the whole time with another actress who also plays me. We're both playing the same part. And, um, it was, you know, right when Hinckley had, uh, had the assassination attempt. So it was a pretty difficult moment to be on stage. And I think that might have made me not particularly want to do it a lot. <laughs> that, that makes sense, uh, yeah. And and then um, I didn't love the experience as an actor. I loved going to theater. I loved what theater could do. I loved great plays, but I did not love the experience of being an actor on stage. Um, I really, really love movies. I love the control that you have uh, uh, deciding what the audience experiences and deciding what they see and not and not that lovely free thing that people love about theater I personally as, a, as an actor don't really like it yeah uh, and I just want to come back to the lion situation for a moment because there was a time where you had something that happened and you got right back on the horse I know we're not I'm not in any way gonna f dive into this but I just want to note you were this was two weekends this play in between which this insanity happened and you were back for the second weekend. Yeah. Why, why do you, why was that important to you? Did you, I mean, is that proving something to yourself or to others? I don't know. There's, you know, it, my 18 year old self is a big question mark. And my mom was, you know, my mom really, she came, she got on a plane and she came and she said, look, you don't have to do this. And I was like, the show must go on. And this was a promise that I made and it was a commitment. And I believe I can do this safely. I don't know. Was it a good idea? Probably not. Um, now, you know, 40 years later, I don't, I don't know that I can say that it was a great idea, but I think at the time it was important to me. 
Also, I want to ask you about, I thought this was interesting. Uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates is somebody yeah. who now is at Harvard, but I guess he would, in those days was at Yale and was a real um, mentor to you, I believe. Why was he, there was a, was there tr- actually a moment where you thought maybe I will stay in academia and work with him for a little bit? Yeah. Skip Gates was my advisor. Um, he is a, you know, uh, got two genius grants. He's been on the cover of New York Times a number of times. He's, he's just an extraordinary, extraordinary person, uh, extraordinary thinker, extraordinary academic, and hilarious as well. Somebody that I genuinely, absolutely love and loved him from the minute I met him. I was I was a literature major, but I uh, f- my focus was African and African American studies. Uh, literature from, you know, both of those places. And um, uh, along with Anthony Appia, I, uh, the, the, these guys were my advisors. And when I finished Yale, he, he said, look, I'd love for you to continue if that's something you want to do. And um, at that time, he was going to Cornell. And um, I, I think he was at Duke for a second, then at Cornell. And then eventually he went to Harvard. And there was a part of me that thought like, oh, well, my career is going to be over as an actor. And I love to write and I love literature. And um, maybe this is maybe this is what I need to be doing. When I did The Accused, right after I did The Accused, I took my GREs thinking like, okay, I'm not sure I did a very good performance in that movie. My career <laughs> might very well be over. And uh, why don't I pursue, you know, maybe I'll pursue this academic thing. So I did my GREs kind of thinking that that's where I was headed, but I didn't end up heading there. What year did you graduate from Yale? Well, technically, technically I graduated in 85, but I consider okay. myself the class of 84 because okay. I took, I took a couple semesters off, yeah. which means I didn't graduate technically with my class, but I mm-hmm. only came back for one extra semester. Got it. And the only reason I ask is that you come out of, out of Yale and the accused was not out until 1988. So there were a few years before there when, you know, you're saying, I don't know what my career is going to be. I don't know if this movie, uh, but I, I guess I want to ask about that role, which obviously is now regarded as one of your great performances and you won your first Oscar and all of that. But at the time they were not, you, you were, I think, asked to audition for the first time since you were like a toddler, why, uh, or, you know, or close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what was your feeling about that when I guess it's Stanley Jaffe and, uh, Sherry Lansing say, you know, we've got to see you before we can cast you. Well, I think that's totally normal. I mean, I like the audition process and I think, I think the audition process is really important, not just for the actor, but for the director to be able to hear the, the actors come in and, you know, I'm, when I bring in actors for auditions, it helps me make revisions on the script because I see what's working, what's not, not working. And I was auditioning a lot when I graduated from college, I auditioned for a lot of movies and some of which I did and some of which I didn't do. That's normal. I think that was normal. Uh, I think what was weird about the audition process for the accused was that, it was screen tests, which I don't, you know, I have, uh, there's, it's very rare to do screen tests. And those screen tests are like, you know, only a few people get to do those screen tests. So they didn't want me to do a screen test. They just, they were like, yeah, I don't want to see, we don't want to see you and we don't want you to do a screen test. And so I had to, I had to fight for that a little bit. Um, and they had some ideas about what I was like, you know, they thought that maybe I looked like what I looked like when I was 14 and, you know, they didn't know if I'd look okay in a mini skirt. And so they wanted to set eyes on me. And then I did the screen test and the producers were like, great, we don't particularly like the screen test and we don't want you. Um, the director, however, Jonathan Kaplan, who I adore, um, was very keen on my performance and said, no, 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 I think you're making a mistake. This is the person that I want. And so I had to come back in again and kind of defend my performance. 
Uh, but it all worked out. We're all friends. You know, it all worked out <laughs> in the end. Um, and I think that being at, fighting for a performance like that, I think, is helps you understand why it's important to you. And, and you know, it helps you understand why you need to give this performance and you need to give the um, to go to places that you may not have gone before. So that was again, just an amazing performance. But I wonder if you can talk about the moment that it kind of came out of because you had played a rape victim in the Hotel New Hampshire 1984. You had been a victim of an attempted rape in Five Corners in 87. And now here you are playing someone who is gang raped in this movie, which obviously is about a lot more than that. It's just, you know, dealing with something that that I think is very relevant even in this current moment are are witnesses as guilty in a sense as the perpetrators of that all of that but I guess I just wonder what what did you make of the kinds of roles that were offered to actresses at that time generally um yeah it's a combination of two things one was that I was attracted to dark material where women survive things mm-hmm. so they survive difficult horrible circumstances and they survive intact and then become this stronger character mm-hmm. and the second thing is the lazy writing that has been a part of the male canon where when a lot of you know a lot of male writers when you say what's motivating the female character they're like hmm what's motivating the female character Rape? You know, mm. it's just like they just can't think. They just are not imaginative enough to come up with any other thing that could possibly motivate women. Uh-huh. Um, and that that I think is just, you know, when I, when I did turn around at, after the accused and realize like, wow, I've, I've actually played a lot of victims in my life. That's amazing. I actually have played a lot of rape victims in my life. And while I was about to sign the contract to play another one, I stopped myself and said, what am I doing? I, what, wait, what am I doing? I think I need to, I need, I think I need to examine it. And I feel like Silence of the Lambs, in a way, was an examination of Clarice's examination of why she was on a mission to save women that were victims. Um, and so in some ways it was like the next step of a spiritual, psychological, unconscious obsession. And it really was the next step because, you know, you win an Oscar. Normally people say you got to strike while the iron's hot. Do this right away. So that Oscar was in early 89. And then Silence of the Lambs, your next movie, was out only in early 91. Not that you weren't doing other things. I know you were developing your first directorial project and all of that. But I, uh, it seems like you were at that point going to be very specific about what you did next. And and I do want to just come back for one second, though, to, uh, you know, people might assume that for you, the the most brutal, difficult part of the accused would have been doing the gang rape scene, which I believe was shot over like five days. You have said, actually, that was that was not the case, right? You were comforting people that did that scene and you had a harder time with another scene. Yeah, yeah. I'll go. I'll go back to that. But let me just go back further, just to say that the timelines of when movies are released is not the timelines to when the movies are shot. So after the accused, I made uh, I made actually tons of movies back to back with that. I made two other movies very quickly after the accused. Um, Jonathan uh, Jonathan Kaplan took a long time to edit the accused, and Uh. um, and there was a lot of issues with that and the timing of that. But. Also, Jonathan Demi took a long time to edit <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. Okay. So it looks like, wow, you didn't do anything you know, between right. those two movies. But actually, you know, I made, I made a few films in there. Got um, it. Got it. The rape scenes were tough, but I think I was very busy telling everybody they weren't. 
Um, mm-hmm. I was very busy telling everybody that I was strong and I could take it and, you know, kind of being, you know, chewing gum and mm-hmm. pretending that it didn't affect me. Um, yes, of course it affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, interestingly, when we were doing the rape scenes in the accused, it really affected the men who were playing the rapists. Um, and that was really hard for me to watch. And I felt like I needed to come to their rescue in a way. And I did a lot of caring for them because mm-hmm. I felt bad for them that they had to go through what they went through, which is, you know, I was only 25 years old, 60 years yeah. old or something. So, you, you know, you can see all of the neuroses and the unconscious you know, motivations coming to a head there. Um, so I think I was doing a lot of pretending that it didn't affect me and also, you know, drinking in the bar at night and with other actors that were in Vancouver on their television shows. And I, I remember not wanting to go to sleep in my own bed that I had this, I was like scared to go to my hotel room and I didn't really know why. So I was, yeah, it was, I was a kid. I was really yeah, a kid. And, yeah. um, and I was, um, just, just learning myself. So I would say that, yes, the rape scenes were difficult, but interestingly, I think the, the courtroom scenes were, seemed a lot harder for me because everybody want, had an idea of a performance that they wanted from those scenes. And I struggled because I could only just give them the performance that instinctually I knew was right. And I felt like I wasn't capable of just pleasing them. I wasn't able to give them some performance that they were pulling out of the recesses of their mind that they were hoping for. So to me, that was a very dispiriting experience. And in the end, I recognize now and even years later and after winning the Oscar that that's what an actor does, which is give their instinctual things and, um, when somebody second guesses that, it's very difficult for actors. But I, I, I had a hard time giving myself a break on that. I was a people pleaser, and I was really hoping I could please the producers. And do you think that what I, I, I know that even in conjunction with Silence of the Lambs, you, you know, when people were saying this is such a great performance, you deserve an Oscar for this one too. One of the things you had said was. No, I mean, this is not the kind of showy thing that they go for where it's, you know, uh, tears and flipping out and loud. Um, it's interesting that both of these movies, which you won, both both of them you won uh, Oscars for, were s- sort of subverting the the kind of cliche idea of what a Oscar performance is, especially for a for an actress. Especially for women. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, that was the thing is that there's an idea of, you know, what it, what you know, what constitutes a, um, worthy role for a woman, what constitutes a worthy performance for a woman. I think that changed, um, as time went on, as we started seeing, allowing women to play more complex characters, uh, allow, allow women to play characters that were individuals first, and that weren't just necessarily just playing, oh, that's the, the woman in the movie. So not just playing their sex. So we're speaking on Friday, February 12th. Sunday, the 14th, is going to be the 30th anniversary of the release of Silence of the Lambs. Happy anniversary. And, and happy uh, Valentine's Day. And happy released on Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's right. And just in case anyone's living under a rock, just to remind them, Clarice Starling, young FBI agent, asked to meet with an incarcerated serial killer to try to obtain insights into the mind of a serial killer who's still on the loose. And um, I guess... You know, did you ever find out what made them, I guess, Jonathan, probably uh, what made him 
think of you for this part and and what attracted you to it? I had read that your mother, again, was uh, not not big on this one. Um, well, he definitely wasn't attracted to me first for the role. He, he had it was out to another actress that he'd worked with. And I had read the book a long time before uh, it had been given to me by actually uh, by by a journalist and a screenwriter. Both of them had said, you need to read this book because you need to play this part. Wow. And I read the book and I was like, OK, I, I decided that as a producer, I was going to look into it and see if I could get the rights. I found out that Orion had the rights and that, in fact, that they had already hired a writer and that there was already a director. And the director was Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was going to play. Uh, I don't know if he was going to play Lecter or he was going to play Crawford, um, but he was also going to direct so I was like, okay, I want to get in there because I want to play this part. And um, Gene Hackman decided, unbeknownst to me, decided that he didn't want to uh, be involved in the movie. And they immediately sent the movie to Jonathan Demme as, for, as a director. And I was just so upset because I was like, I told you I wanted to act in the movie and now he's not going to give me a shot at it, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> and so I, uh, I basically, you know, let him know. I don't remember if I wrote a letter or if I called him on the phone or whatever it was. And I said, look, I would like to, uh, I would like to fly myself to New York and I would just like to meet with you. And I, I already know that you're out to another actress, but I would like to be your second choice. So I did. I flew myself to New York and I went was in a room with him and I gave him the reasons why I felt like I was compelled to play the character. And a lot of them was a sort of it was the literary critic in me, you know, that really talked about the book and talked about um, what what I felt my goals as somebody who was trying to overcome being a victim and playing a victim to finally being able to uh, hold the reins of that mythic character of the, of Clarice's character. Mm -hmm. And I said, so, so with this, I say goodbye. I know you're, you're going to work with somebody else, but I just want to be your second choice. And that's exactly what happened. The other actress turned it down and I was their second choice. That's great. Uh, I wonder if you can expand on two things that have come up. One of them is Jonathan Demi. Why was he, why is, was he, I'm, it's sad to say now, I, why was he somebody that, actors and actresses so loved working with. And then also specifically with Silence of the Lambs, you just mentioned sort of a mythic element. I wonder if you can break it down because it actually is fascinating why from a story point of view, a liter literature point of view, it, it works so well. Yeah. Um, well, Jonathan, everyone loves Jonathan because he's kind and he's funny and he's generous and vulnerable and sweet and, you know, a cheerleader. He was really, really a cheerleader. So you, there's no person on earth that couldn't love Jonathan Demi. But uh, he also had this just enthusiasm, this incredible boyish enthusiasm. And he wanted to make serious films, but he couldn't. He had that twinkle. Like he couldn't take a tiny little bit of comedy out of it, um, which I think really makes it really, really is wonderful for Sansa Lambs. There's this little twinkle in the movie of um, glee um, that you really get from from Jonathan, uh, in Jonathan's direction. So that's Jonathan, who I just adore and we all miss so much. You know, he just passed away recently. Mm -hmm. I say recently, it's been a few years, but mm -hmm. um, in fact, I was I just sent a a letter to his wife, Joanne, just, um, you know, reminding her that, you know, it's, she reminded me actually that it's Valentine's mm -hmm. day and that has such a big part in our life. Um, and just, we're rem just remembering Jonathan as I always yeah. do this time of year. And then the mythic part. Yeah. I guess what I said to him was that, that this is an old myth. Uh, the, the structure of silence of the lamb comes from an old myth of, you know, there is a young male King and he, 
his, you know, like Oedipus, his, uh, his country is suffering from a disease and he has to go into the forests of experience to find the panacea for the illness. And he goes and meets gnomes and demons and unfortunately has to have a reflection of his most shameful self and is able through real self-interrogation is able to grab the panacea, come back to his people. But the big problem is, is that he has changed and he will never be of them again. So he will save his people, but he will never be of them again because he is no longer a citizen of that world. And that's just, it's just a beautiful myth that has always been reserved for men. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, I, I at one point wanted to be a classics major and I was really interested in mythology and that mythology was a part of my path as an actor as well of, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you, wanting to this mission that is older than me, that, that says, I want to help give people a voice that don't have a voice. Um, and I just keep obsessively doing that over and over and over again, it's a pattern. And there will always be the, the screaming of the lambs. Um, there will always be another scream for me to attend to, um, that, that I felt like that was part of my path too. And it's, uh, you know, in terms of the facing, you know, the, the mythology that you reference where you're sort of facing down the thing that you're most afraid of in a sense, uh, those scenes with Hopkins are still uh, incredible. And I think people should remember, I, I, I believe they were, so you guys are shooting through, looking at each other through <laughs> glass yeah. in super close up, looking right into the camera though, in a lot of those scenes, um, yeah, well, we couldn't just, see each other. You, oh, you couldn't? No. I mean, that's what's so amazing about most of those takes is that because he used this direct-to-lens technique that um, uh, Hitchcock talked a lot about and that Jonathan was very, you know, was very interested in using for the first time. And he used it quite a bit after that uh, with other films. But um, because we used that technique, it meant that he couldn't ever see me when we were shooting him. He wouldn't see me. He could hear me. I'd be behind right. the cameraman. He could hear me saying my lines, but he was actually looking through the lens and um, the same was on my side. So we'd have these, you know, long scenes together where we actually couldn't see each other at all. We could just hear each other over the, over the, uh, the, the operator's shoulder. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, and just to quickly note that movie, not only was your second Oscar, but that's the only one of the most recent of only three movies ever to win the big five picture director, actor, actress, and screenplay. And what's incredible also is that it happened at the time when the distributor, as you say, Orion was essentially going broke. <laughs> Bankrupt. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's bankruptcy. like, ugh, crazy. It um, was a crazy, crazy moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Giddy. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, at the same time, you are realizing your ambition of whatever, at 27 years at that point of directing with Little Man Tate, um, which I wonder, you know, obviously everyone looks at the story of a a gifted kid. What do you, you know, what's the right course for this kid? And even though it's a a boy in the film, they say, all right, is this Jody reenacting her life or, or something like that? To what degree was it that? Well, um, the, the script existed before I ever saw it. So, mm-hmm. so it didn't, it didn't emerge from my biography or my yeah. autobiography, but it, it felt very biographical to me. Yeah. It felt like, um, it was the story of my life and yet I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I would never call myself a genius, but I know that I was prodigious in some weird thing that I did. I lived a prodigious life. Um, and you know, the, the motto on the film was, it's not what he knows, it's what he understands. And I, I think that was very true with me that, um, I was thrust into a world where I was groomed in some ways to 
and, and prepared to understand things that nobody my age should understand. And I was open to that and prodigious at that. And that allowed me to have a depth at a time where there's no reason why a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old should have that kind of depth. And, and that was true of Fred Tate in the movie. Um, of course, I can't do math. So, you know, none of that <laughs> is similar. Um, but there is a loneliness that comes with that, right? Because you, you see so much and you feel so much uh, from all of these adults' lives you you take that in and you care for them, and um, there's a loneliness to it. This was not the only time of the films you've directed where you were directing a, a child actor, and I wonder if your experience as a child as a child actor taught you anything about how to direct other kids uh, differently than you had been directed. Definitely. I mean, it definitely gave me an advantage. I had a whole long list of things that I hated that directors did with me when I was a kid. And the, fir the, first, the first on the list was that they treated me like a baby. And they didn't treat me like an individual, like a regular person or like an actor. Um, and they talked down to me or they would try to try to get in my head and kind of be in the experience with me and say things like, you know, you know, let's we're imagining that my dog died or and I'd be like, no, I'm not going to imagine my dog died like I'm an actor. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I wanted to be treated with that kind of uh, that respect and to be an equal with the directors that I worked with. So that's really just how I, how I was with Adam. Um, and it, I mean, it was a real advantage to be in scenes with him because I acted in the film. So I was yeah. able to, you know, elicit a performance by, by being the actor that was with him. So that film was actually quite uh, successful. And I know that there was a time where you said you get emotional just talking about it. I wonder why that is. What was, what does it represent as you look back? Oh, first film, I guess it's like your first novel or your first anything. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's an unconscious cry of this is who I am. And, you know, some parts of it are really naive. You get it wrong or it's clumsy or awkward, but it, it's you being open in a way that I don't think you can even ever be open again in a way. It's just, it's like a first love. Yeah. Um, so that film will always mean more to me than any movie, you know, that I've ever made. And I, I feel like the, those were real feelings. Um, uh, that was, that was really me putting my foot forward for the first time and saying, this is who I am. Yeah. You have made so many, you've given so many great performances, directed so many notable movies. I, I wish I could ask you about them all, but I hope I can just highlight a few of the notable ones along the rest of the way. I mean, this is skipping forward about three years, but Nell Michael Apted just passed away, the director, yes. uh, but this was one of one of the more special movies that he was a part of. I know that you've said it's, it was life changing for you. Um, it was the first film to come out of, I believe, your production company that you had formed. I guess I just wonder, you know, this is a woman sort of of the wild who is being dealt with. Maybe I'm projecting, but was the thing that made this special for you or or unique I don't think we've seen you be super vulnerable in too many movies. And obviously here we we do. That's not a criticism of the other movies, but I right. just wonder, is that is that overanalyzing? No, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that there aren't many characters that exist like her anyway in right. the world. Right? right. Somebody who has been, um, you know, cut off from modern society and who lives with her her all of her feelings on her on her on her on her skin. Um, so 
that was a big, life-shaking, life-changing performance for me to give. And I thought I didn't know how. And I was like, okay, what book can I read? You know, what research can I do? And I I realized that it all comes from within. And that was something that I had to access. And then once I recognized that I had that in me and that I could get to that place, I couldn't live there, but I could get to that place um, because I don't think anybody can live there. Um, I could just drink coffee and then wait for somebody (laughs) to say action. (laughs) So it wasn't as... That, that was the revelation, was that it was easy. And for all these years, I had been thinking something like that was impossible and that was too hard. And that if I ever did that, I, my, my head would blow off my head, my shoulders. <laughs> uh, so it, it was obviously a fear that I was dealing yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the one of the great performances. And then um, the next year was Home for the Holidays, your second time directing, first time not being in a movie that you are directing. Was that more or less... Uh, do you feel like you can control the situation more or less when you're not also in the movie that you're directing? Well, it's a much more pleasant experience. I mean, it is no fun. <laughs> it's no fun to act and direct and film, you know, to be in curlers at, you know, to get to set at three in the morning so that you can be standing behind a, a camera and curlers um, at you know, six and go back and forth from behind the camera to the makeup trailer to behind the camera to makeup trailer. You know, all that is just awful. So I, I have, I have, amazing faith in directors that can do that. Um, I really prefer to just direct. Uh, and, um, so home for the holidays was just a lovely experience for me to be able to get all those actors together and watch them have a relationship with each other and to see what that brought to the, brought to the, to the film. So, uh, flash, fast forwarding two years to, Contact Robert Zemeckis, you are playing this astronomer searching for extraterrestrial life or, or proof of it. And you have said that that character, quote, is most like me of any person I've ever played, close quote. How so? Yeah, I think so. I, I think she's the most like me, um, or at least most like me when I was younger. Um, and I was tenacious and unsatisfied, you know, unsatisfied with the present and was always looking towards some other thing that was going to be the ultimate thing. Um, you know, somebody who was grappling with her knowledge in science and her huge heart and spirituality, you know, the trying to figure out how to, how to, how to weave those two things together. Absolutely. And I just always think of that great shot with the camera zooming in on your eye when you realize what's going on. And anyway, that's another one. Yeah. And it's, it's Bob Zemeckis, you know, Bob Zemeckis inventing things before we had digital technology, you know, before any of those things ever existed. He was every day, he would invent something new, uh, that would just, he, he would come up from some fever dream he would have in the middle of the night and say, what if we tried to, you know, and then suddenly you'd be (laughs) off. Amazing. Well, that, brings us to Anna and the King, which we uh, have previously said was the first movie you played someone who actually existed. But uh, this was 250 years ago and not the most reliable teller of her own story, but basically a non-musical King and I, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, not necessarily my greatest movie I've ever made, but I think I have such great memories from it because my my son was six months old and I was in living in Malaysia and um, I love Chow Yun-Fat so much. And it was just such a great experience. So and I, I was glad that I was able to tell that story because it's it's a great story. I've made yeah. a lot of other movies that perhaps will live longer in my <laughs> canon. <laughs> well, uh, one of them may be uh, Panic Room, which uh, again, you're working with a young 
at that point, a uh, child actress, I guess you could say, Kristen Stewart at that point. We just talked about this movie last episode because we had Jared Leto on and we were talking with him about it. And But here, you know, I think the most interesting thing that I to me was that David Fincher seems to be unlike any other filmmaker except maybe William Wyler from apparently the way he worked in the golden age where he is obsessive to the extent that he's going to literally shoot. I've heard sometimes like 90 takes. Can you compare and contrast that with somebody like Spike Lee, who you did Inside Man with, who I understand wants to just like quickly get on to the next Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Everybody's different, you know, and you're yep. always serving these different visions. Um, I mean, I have so much respect for David Fincher and I've learned so much from him. Mm. What an amazing director and also just a great guy. I mean, I just love him. He's crazy, but I love him. <laughs> um, I was pregnant on that movie and yes, Kristen Stewart turned 11 on that film. And the whole time that I was there pregnant, you know, feeling nauseous uh, in that tiny little room where it, that was filled with this smoke that we use in order to give a diffusion to the atmosphere atmosphere in the film. I just kept thinking like, I hope I have a kid like Kristen Stewart. I hope uh, I have a kid like Kristen Stewart. Cause I just loved every minute of being with her, but Fincher's great. Um, yes, he is very different than other directors that I've worked with. Um, he's madly obsessive and his films reflect that kind of amazing attention to detail. Um, Spike Lee, for example, is somebody, well, he, he, he has a lot of attention to detail too, but he, he just wants to keep going. You know, he just wants more footage and he wants more experiences and he wants to, you know, shoot more things. He's just impatient about it and giddy. And, um, I love that too. You know, I love Spike Lee and, um, I, I've loved every director that I worked with and, um, you know, except for the ones I don't like. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, a few, well, you know, um, they're, they're all just trying to make movies and making, getting a movie off the ground and making a movie is the hardest thing in the world. If you could kind of psychoanalyze something for me, it seems like Flight Plan, The Brave One, several of the, you know, relatively more recent performances, you have played characters who basically I think could have been and in some cases were written as male characters. They aren't really attached to anyone romantically, and they're basically people who are no nonsense and, and kick a lot of ass. Is that something you find yourself increasingly drawn to for any particular reason? Oh, definitely not increasingly, because I feel like <laughs> that era is over. Um, both, both of the ones that you mentioned, their husbands yeah. are dead. Yeah their, yeah, their boyfriends or their partners are dead and um, a recent loss. Both of them are recent loss. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that this, I had forgotten that, about that in those two movies. I do really like playing solitary characters. Um, I I will kill people off in the development <laughs> process. I'll be like, why does she have to be married? Why does she have to have a father? I don't understand. Why, why can't, you know, I'm, I like solitary characters. I like that path of somebody trying to find themselves without being in reference to somebody else. Um, and in the case of flight plan, of course, she's, you know, her single most thing is to try to find her child who has gone missing on this plane. And everybody's now, now saying to her that the child never happened. The child wasn't there. The child's long dead. Um, that idea of female hysteria, right? This weird myth of female hysteria that historically has plagued women that when they, take charge, when they disagree, when they don't emotionally say the things that you want them to say, that they are hysterical, that they're crazy, that they're insane. You know, that, that to me was very interesting about a flight plan that, that her, that in defying that was her affirming her identity. The brave one, I think, you know, it's sort of, sort of similar. It, it's an existential, identity film in some ways. Um, she has this terrible thing happen to her and 
when she awakens from this trauma, she becomes the person she was always intended to be, but is somebody who is a stranger to her that she had she would never have recognized before. She is forever changed. And she, it's somebody that she is at once ashamed of and is just absolutely energetically titillated by, you know, that she has become this force of nature. That's more than, than anything that she ever thought she was. So yeah, I guess those are two kind of like female survival kick-ass identity movies. Well, and you've said that it's not usually the case that women are allowed to show anger or rage on screen. And, and that was uh, something that maybe you, you fought to be allowed yeah, to do. I mean, you know, the, the character in The Brave One probably has more to do, is sort of a thinking version of Travis Bickle in yeah. some ways, you know, somebody yeah. who is, you know, it's, you know, it's not, you know, she's not Travis Bickle because Travis was unconscious of who he was. In fact, that's what makes her suffering greater is that she is conscious that this is who mm-hmm. she's becoming. But, you know, she is becoming a killer. Somebody comes consumed by revenge. Absolutely. So it was, I think, a gap of 16 years when you had <laughs> not directed, when you came back with The Beaver, which I think was the first time I was fortunate enough to speak with you. This came out in 2011. And you have said... It was, quote, probably the biggest struggle of my professional career, close quote. Now, <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's a combination of making and then selling that movie. But uh, w- why was it in your if I don't want to put words in your mouth? Yeah. If you, yeah. If you get if you see interviews that are just after the movie's been released, I, I do say this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And then the <laughs> next movie, I say this is the hardest thing I've ever done. But actually, The Beaver was very challenging. Um, uh, not the shooting. The shooting was magnificent and easy. And, you know, I was so proud of Mel's performance. And he just gave me so much more than I could have ever imagined. And so effortlessly it was, you know, the process of releasing the movie and uh, how everybody felt about the film and how, you know, how, how we had to pivot in terms of the news and, you know, male scandals and all that, you know, it, it, it was difficult. It definitely was difficult, but I'm, I'm very proud of that movie. Um, it took a minute to figure that film out. And even for me, it took me a minute to figure out, um, because it did have an odd tone and I know it's not for everybody, but I will always love it. And we should, again, just note what a great eye you have for young talent because you had both, very sadly, the late Anton Yelchin and Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, these are two great young performers. But for you, the year after that, you turned 50, 2012, and you have said that in some ways everything changed then, and I wonder why. Well, things were changing. Um, Lots of things changed in my life, my personal life. And Mm -hmm. um, I did make a decision, which I knew was coming, where I really wanted to focus on directing. Um, And it was clear to me that I could, there were a lot of things that I had done for many, many years as an actor that were just about, you know, the kind of giving that I was giving as an actor uh, to try to, quote, make things work um, that I wasn't willing to do anymore. And so I thought that in a way I thought, oh, well, I don't know how much I'm going to act anymore. And maybe there'll be something that'll come along that I'm going to love that feels meaningful to me. And I will do that. But if it doesn't feel meaningful to me, I am no longer going to try and put a round hole in a square peg. Um, And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know whether I would ever act again. And it was, in fact, I think six years before Hotel Artemis. And in that period, though, directed some wonderful TV, Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, Black Mirror, uh, another movie with Money Monster in 2016. And 
uh, obviously all leading up to the Mauritanian just coming now, which when you're now being more selective about the acting roles that you take, what was it that made you, what made you say yes to this one? In context, uh, you know, I spent, I did direct a lot in those yeah. years. Um, I directed a lot of TV and streaming and um, just to get my feet wet and figure out what streaming was. And then, and uh, also directed Money Monster, which is a pretty big movie and a pretty big studio undertaking for me. Um, you know, a lot of action and, you know, bigger budget and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, and a difficult film as well. Um, there came a moment where I really wanted to prioritize my directing work. And, um, and that being said, you know, you hit a certain age and there aren't as many roles available to you too. So that, that all, all those things come into consideration, but I, especially there did come a moment in my life where I just really wanted to make films as an actor, if I was going to go in front of the camera that were meaningful to me and that I felt I could not only learn from, but also contribute somehow to society in a way to make people better instead of worse. And that doesn't mean it's always got to be a political movie or a historical film. You know, it can be a comedy too. Um, but that there have to be ideas in some ways that I feel, uh, make me obsessed and that make me inspired. So really it was just about reading the script. I mean, I read the script once and was like, yep, I want to do this. Um, not only because of the character of Muhammadu, which I think was the number one reason uh, that I wanted to do the film, but also because of Kevin McDonald, you know, knowing that he would be the filmmaker, that, that made all the difference. Knowing that the person who was helming the film, the vision of the film, um, had a uh, respect for the facts. Um, you know, Kevin makes great documentaries and he has that eye for detail, but also respects each one of the characters, knows that each one of the characters has a story and has a point of view. But he also has a real sense of cinema. So I think you have to have those two things in order to make this film work. So it wasn't that you weren't reading scripts during that hiatus. It's that you were just less inclined to take something that wasn't perfect. Yes, I was definitely reading throughout. And there are a lot less movies when you turn 50. As a woman, especially, there's a lot less movies. And But also... I made a decision that because I was focusing on directing, that meant that if I was in prep on something that I was directing, or if I was about to do something as directing, I was not going to read anything as an actor, and I wasn't going to say yes to anything, because that would derail what I had just committed to as a director. And um, I think if you don't do that, uh, if you don't, you know, make a decision to have your directing first, you're never going to end up directing. Yeah, yeah. So I, ha I had to make that decision. It was clear to me that I had to make that decision, because I was going to end up not directing at all. And... You know, and I guess another key thing was going to be this character that you're playing, Nancy Hollander. I, I think that she was probably a bit more accessible than Muhammadu early on in this, in the sense that. So I, I you know, but at the same time, I, I find it really interesting. You've you've done, I don't know what the exact count is at this point, but probably well over fifty movies over the course of your career, and yet I believe this is the first time that you've played a living. Yep. real person. You know, I'm curious, was that a deliberate thing or just the way it's worked out in the sense that, you know, maybe there's something about playing a real person that gave you some pause? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I honestly, and boy, this always sounds terrible when I say this, but I'm just not a big fan of biopics. I just don't really like them. Um, I'm always disappointed by their scripts. And I feel like um, very often people look, look at a real life character they somehow bring intense meaning to how they died, you know? So it's like, they lived, they met famous people, they did these five things that you remember, and then they died. And that's just not a good structure. It's not a good structure for film, um, and I need more than that. So uh, I'm, I'm super picky about, about biopics, what kind of biopics that I would ever do. And, and this, this 
film script really lived up to any kind of script that I would take on, uh, whether it was a true story or not. But Nancy Hollander is a very special person. I mean, she's, you know, uh, brilliant, of course, and has this intense, sober legal mind. Uh, but she's also a whole bunch of contradictions, you know, with her red lipstick and her red nail polish. And, you know, she likes to drive race cars and listens to a lot of country music. I mean, all these things that you would never associate with her. So I was intrigued by her. Um, and then uh, I did a lot of, a bit of research about her and about Guantanamo. And then when I met her, I mean, she's just an amazing lady. And I felt very blessed that I could, that I get to play her. So in the, I guess, midst of shooting or getting ready to shoot, uh, you look up and Muhammadu and Nancy show up in, in Cape Town. That's gotta be a, that's gotta be a, a jarring thing. Well, we knew Nancy was coming. So we knew Nancy was coming. And then um, it was really just like, it was almost like the day before, I think, that we found out that, that Muhammadu had figured out that he was finally going to be able to get accepted uh, and get his uh, visa for South Africa. You obviously made this film because there was a sort of socially important motivation here that people should know his story and that maybe learn from it. What would you like people to take away from seeing it? And and are you concerned, should we all be concerned that there are more Mohammedus still at Guantanamo or or elsewhere? Sure. I mean, I think we'll, we hope people get to know and love Mohammedu and be, are able to see his story from his perspective. And that will be a new thing for a mainstream movie to have a Muslim man be the perspective of the movie with all of his complexity. Um, that usually isn't the case. So I think that's a hope that we have um, because it's not just his story, but it's his character who managed to live through all of this suffering and emerge as a more human person who is affectionate and forgiving and loving and vulnerable. Um, all the things that you wouldn't expect uh, that he would take out of that experience. And then, of course, you know, the, you know, Guantanamo is still open, which is insane. Um, and I think a lot of us would love to see it closed. Yeah. So I hope for the last thing, if it's okay, maybe just like a minute of what we call rapid fire. So to begin with, is there a role that got away? I had once read that you were up for Sophie's Choice. Maybe there are others. Is there one? That's not true? <laughs> no. No? Okay. Well, is there one that uh, that you wanted that it just didn't work out for whatever reason? Yeah, and you probably have never heard of them. That's what's so funny. Uh, no, there really aren't any, there aren't very many. I mean, when I think of movies that I didn't do that I would have loved to have do, done, I mean, I think of like every movie all the men in the movie business have made that I that were not available to me. I mean, yeah, I would have loved to have played Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, or, you know, any of the roles uh, the, uh, in the movies that the actors played that, that I directed, you know. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of roles for human beings that weren't available to me because I wasn't a guy. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, the Godfather. I mean, come yeah, on, wouldn't yeah, I make yeah. the great, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, if a film class 50 years from now could only see one movie with which Jodie Foster was associated, which would you want it to be? You know, what's really funny is I, I mean, I think people would probably think it was either Tax Driver, Sansa Lambs, but I was associated with a movie that I had nothing to do with. Um, and I basically saw it and said, okay, how can I help you? And I helped to distribute it. It's a French film. It's called La Haine, Hate, um, that Matthew Kasovitz directed that I think is a wonderful movie. And it's really one of my proudest moments was to be associated with that movie, even though I creatively didn't have anything to do with it. Interesting. I believe your kids are now pretty grown up. Uh, but if when they were little kids, 
they had come to you and said, I want to be an actor, what would you have told them? Well, I have a son who is now an actor, so that's oh, really? interesting. Um, or at least he will be. He's just about to graduate college, so I think that's okay. what he'll be doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely did not like show them the possibility that they could be an actor. I definitely kept that off the table. And, um, that was, they just weren't, they weren't even aware of what I did when they were young. I think at one point, my old, my, my older son, I think he thought I was a construction worker because (laughs) I, I brought him to set once and they were in the middle of creating sets. And I showed him, like, I gave him like a tool belt and I showed him how to hammer things. And I think he thought, Oh, mom's, mom's a construction worker. I get it now. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I just, didn't, I mean, maybe that's a bad thing that I just didn't, I didn't bring them into the film world really, um, until they were old enough to really understand what it was. Do you think it was to you just as a philosophical thing that, you know, you want to protect them from what it is to be a kid actor? Yeah. And I guess I just didn't want them to know me that way. I didn't want Mm -hmm. them to know me as like special or every I don't know. I think it's really hard to be the child of a, of a, of a celebrity or a famous person. And I wanted to have a cocoon a little bit where they knew me as mom and they knew me in a different capacity. And then maybe when they were old enough to be able to digest it and to understand the, the complexities of it, that they would, that I would introduce it to them later. Do you ever wonder, you know, if you had never gotten into acting, what would you be doing today? All the time. I, I think about that every week. Like, who would I have been? And, you know, would I have been a different person? Of course I would have been a different person. Um, and in ways that are really positive and in some ways that are really negative, you know, I mean, we're just, all of us are just an amalgamation of our histories and the things that have happened to us. But I think I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for movies because it has allowed me to be a more open person to have access to my emotions and be more vulnerable. I can be kind of heady and that's what I'm good at. You know, I'm good at, you know, writing and thinking and dissecting and, um, and it's good to do something that you're not that good at, which, um, I mean, I was not designed as a human to be an actor and I've had to make sense of it. And that's really made me a better person. Final question. I believe you're now 55 years into this career. If you could go back 55 years and say something, well, I guess you wouldn't have known what was going on at three, but when you first, uh, when you first knew what was going on. So let's say, I don't know, maybe when you were eight or nine or whatever, if you could go back with the benefit of all these years of hindsight and say something to that Jody to kind of make life easier for her going forward, what would, what would you say? I think I regret that I was, you know, I was such a good soldier as a kid. I always wanted to please everybody and to do the thing that the person asked. Like I I never met a note that I didn't love. Like I just love getting notes and I love getting directions and homework. Like I just love fulfilling everybody's expectation for me. And I wish that I knew that I could say no, I guess. And when I was a kid, I, I did do a lot of things and I just didn't realize that I could opt out or that I could say no. I mean, you know, somebody said to me like, wow, you, cause I said I had, I, I was frostbitten on my feet and they said, was it from skiing? I was like, no, it's from, you know, m- doing movies, having no socks and wearing rubber boots in the winter and feeling like I wasn't allowed to say my, my toes hurt. You know, I couldn't say that yeah. because somehow I decided that I wasn't allowed to say no, you know? So yeah, that's what I wish I knew. Yeah. Well, I, uh, thank you for so many great films that you've, uh, entertained us all with and for doing this and just a real treat to get to talk to you. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. 
We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.